Well, let's bow our heads and pray together again just a moment. Lord, thank you for the many places we do get to go in this amazing world of ours. Whether traveling to the Holy Land or other parts, vacationing with family in different places. Thank you, Lord, for this season of life for us as we make our way through the various changes here at Christ Church. I pray now that you would take my lips and speak through them, that you would take our minds and think through them, that you would take our wills and form them, shape them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I want to connect the Young Church in Action to what's happening here in the USA today, as we have been across this series that we're working together through in the Acts of the Apostles. The Young Church in Action, that's the heading on the front of your service sheet. The Young Church in Action. That's really our church. We're a young church, just 20 years old. Part of, of course, the ancient church that goes all the way back to our Lord Jesus Christ. In those early days, it was an amazing explosion of gospel truth amongst the Jewish people, first of all. You remember on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 people, excuse me, 3,000 people were converted. One sermon, one day, 3,000. 3,000 baptisms. How do you think they got that done? I hesitate to wonder, and then to nurture those who became believers. But it says they devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So as a consequence of this, the church grew exponentially. Within a couple of chapters, you have Peter and John pulling off a miracle at the gate of the temple, and again, thousands more becoming believers. So very quickly, from 3,000 to 5,000, stated clearly in this historical document, the Acts of the Apostles, the young church in action, to 5,000. There was pushback. Stephen became the first martyr. The church was scattered. And as they were scattered, that is, all the believers, as persecution fell upon them in Jerusalem, they ran up and down the coast to Samaria, Judea, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth, sharing the gospel as they went. And it forced, that persecution forced an exponential explosion of evangelism. 
So you remember that Philip ended up in Samaria. And if you've been following along with this, all well and good. Because you can follow in your minds these names and actions that I'm describing. But Philip ends up in Samaria, called to get on the Gaza Road that runs down to Egypt, actually, from Jerusalem through Gaza down to Egypt, the main course of all travel, to go get himself down on the Gaza Road. And who comes riding by but an Ethiopian treasurer, very important man in Queen Candace's court, and he runs alongside, by God's inspiration and calling, This man, he being Philip, runs alongside the chariot as it's making its way down. And wouldn't you know it, but that Ethiopian who has become a God-worshipper, black man in Jerusalem, came up to the temple to worship, has picked up Isaiah's prophecy and is reading it as he's going along in his chariot. And Philip runs alongside him and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian chap said, I, how am I going to understand unless somebody explains it to me? And he bids Philip jump in the chariot with him and rides on with Philip explaining the gospel. This man becomes a believer, is baptized, and goes on to Ethiopia. In effect, a major evangelistic outreach began in Ethiopia when he went back and started sharing the faith. When missionaries got to Ethiopia, there were already believers there. Because the first missionary was this Ethiopian. Well, immediately on the heels of that, with people scattered up and down the coast... God moves in on Caesarea. Now the significance of that, just take the name, Caesarea. A city named after Caesar. That is the Roman emperor's title, Caesarea. And it's where the governor, the Roman governor of that part of Palestine... Israel was seated with authority in a palace. That's a secular, pagan, Roman center, Caesarea. There was a major military force there. In that military force, there was a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and you heard a piece of this story this morning, who had become a God-worshipper. That means that he became a Jewish proselyte, as far as we can understand. So he's praying with, worshipping with, and being very generous to the Jewish population that's in Caesarea. But he is a Roman and a centurion. And the leader of this Italian band or guard, an elite group. He's a man in authority. And he has a vision. He has a vision first. 
And his vision was this. When the angel came to him, it said, Send and bring up here to speak to you and your household a man by the name of Peter. He's down in Joppa. Go fetch him. Joppa's uh, about a half an hour drive south of Caesarea. Wonderfully, we've been in these places just recently, some of us. In any case, he sends a squad down to get to Peter. Meanwhile, and that's where the text comes in, if you look at page 6 in your service sheet, page 6, you've got this text right there before you. It's Acts chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, about noon the following day, that's beyond this vision, immediately Cornelius sent a group of men down to bring Peter. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that is approaching Joppa, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And what did he see? He saw a vision of a sheet being lowered down with all kinds of creatures in it that Jews were forbidden to eat. That's the significance of this vision. Because Peter is told to kill and eat. And his response is, Lord, I've never eaten any of this. It's unclean. Three times he got that vision. Unclean meaning we Jews have been forbidden in the law to eat these creatures. But three times the vision comes. Kill and eat. And then it goes on to say, as Peter was pondering this vision and wondering what on earth it meant. Look at verse 17 in front of you there. And I'll find it myself too. Here it is. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. You see, right at the beginning of that verse, it says, Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. The word meaning there and the tense in which it's used in the original language of Greek Greek, means intensely thinking this through. Because what he was being asked to do was revolutionary. It was outside both his religious comfort zone and thereby his social comfort zone and his eating, his habitual eating, forbidding any of this. An extraordinary vision God obviously intended to communicate it three times in a row. Once he might think, did I really see that? Twice he said, I bet I did see that. Three times he knew he did. And each time God is saying, kill and eat. And his resistance was, Lord, I've never eaten this stuff. And I won't, is the spirit behind that. And yet God is saying, kill and eat. 
And while he's pondering this, deeply, intensely thinking this through, wondering what options he has, which way to turn, how to deal with this vision, what would all his friends think? How does this apply to the rest of Judaism? How does this apply to the Messiah, my faith? As he's trying to work that all out, the band appears, this group of men, coming down from Caesarea and saying they've been sent by Cornelius the centurion to bring him back up to the city of Caesarea, to speak there to Cornelius and those over whom he had immediate influence. And that's what happens the very next day. And while it's not covered in the reading that you have, when Peter gets there, you've got two visions coming together. A vision of Cornelius who sent people to bring Peter and Peter himself, the vision of this sheep being lowered with unclean creatures in it, coming together and Peter realizing that God was saying to him, the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, but those whom the Jewish people have never associated with, the Gentiles. And that the Gentiles, whom you call unclean, I want you to share the gospel with. And it became clear to Peter, and he spoke this out to the folks who were there, and including Cornelius, that this is what God must intend. But Peter didn't just say it, he then preached what the gospel was. And he explained how Jesus had died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And not just for the Jews only, therefore, but the Gentiles too. And as he's speaking and preaching, and speaking about Jesus being alive, and is the Lord, and one day all men and women will be judged by him, and what they have believed and how they've lived their lives, the Holy Spirit falls on that company of Gentiles. Let me read from verse 44 on. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? He's really speaking to the Jewish audience there. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So he's not only just visiting and preaching to the Gentiles, he's staying and living amongst them. Radical change of behavior. But that's part of the exponential explosion of the gospel. Out into the Gentile world. 
First the Ethiopian, and then Cornelius and those around him. Caesarea became quite a center. And as you read on in the Acts of the Apostles, and let me just stop and put in parenthesis here. I challenged you several weeks ago to read your way at one sitting straight through the Acts of the Apostles. Get the energy, the way things kept moving and exploding with good news. And as the new good news spread, so the opposition got uh, prompted and they instigated persecution. And that persecution further expanded the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. As God said, you will be my witnesses. And the persecution and the opposition did not stop them. It spurred it all on. It's not dissimilar to what happened in China. And I know I've mentioned this along the way over the years. But there are more people getting converted in China today than the rest of the world put together. Every day, more people coming to faith in Christ in China than the rest of the world put together. Do you know how that all began? With Mao Zedong. Chairman Mao. When he took over China, half those who called themselves Christian, and there are a little over a million, immediately stopped being Christian because they saw persecution coming. Half of the rest of them, he executed. And the last quarter, he took husbands from wives and children from their families and scattered them all over China (laughs) and created the largest missionary movement the world had ever seen. A quarter of a million Christians scattered throughout China and they went with the gospel. It didn't shut them up. They went with the gospel and in the face of that opposition shared the good news about Jesus. And today, the fruit of that is extraordinary. China's going to become the evangelistic force in the rest of the world. Mark my words. Now let me step back to where we are. The Supreme Court made a decision very recently that led to this headline of all places in Time magazine. In an op-ed piece, there is this headline. Orthodox Christians must now learn to live as exiles in their own country. The decision concerning homosexual marriage, marriage no longer just between one man and one woman, but between man and man and woman and woman, is appalling. It's in the face of God's word and teaching. It's against the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God Scriptures are clear about the sin of homosexual behavior. It's no greater sin than other sins that we commit. But it is a sin. 
And with that change of law at the highest court in our land comes this headline that Orthodox Christians, that's not Eastern Orthodox, that's normal believing Christians, must now learn to live as exiles in their own country. Let me read some of the statements to back up this. The sky is not falling, not yet anyway, said this article, but the Supreme Court ruling constitutionalizing same-sex marriage. The ground under our feet has shifted tectonically. It is hard to overstate the significance of the Obergfell decision, which is the court decision, and the seriousness of the challenge it presents to Orthodox Christians and other social conservatives. Discerning the meaning of the present moment requires sobriety, precisely because it is radicalism and requires of conservatives a realistic sense of how weak our position is in a post-Christian America. The alarm that the four dissenting justices sounded in their minority opinions is chilling. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Anthony, uh, I'll go by his name, were particularly scathing in pointing out the philosophical and historical groundlessness of the majority's opinion. Justice Scalia even called the decision's threat a threat to democracy and denounced it shockingly in the language of revolution. It is now clear that for this court, extremism in the pursuit of the sexual revolution's goals is no vice. True, the majority opinion nodded and smiled in the direction of the First Amendment in an attempt to calm the fears of those who worried about religious liberty. But when a Supreme Court majority is willing to invent rights out of nothing, it is impossible to have faith that the First Amendment will offer any but the barest protection to religious dissenters from the gay rights orthodoxy. Indeed, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito explicitly warned religious traditionalists that this decision leaves them vulnerable. Alito warns that Obergfell will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy and will be used to oppress the faithful by those who are determined 
to stamp out every vestige of dissent. The warning to the faithful in the churches from the four dissenters could hardly be clearer or stronger. So where does that leave us? For one, we have to accept that we really are living in a a culturally post-Christian nation. The fundamental norms Christians have long been able to depend on no longer exist. To be frank, the court majority may impose on the rest of the nation a view widely shared by elites, but it is also a view shared by, it would seem, a majority of Americans. There will be no widespread popular resistance to the Obergefell decision. This is the new normal. That is chilling. So where does that leave us who know and love Jesus, respect his word as our final authority in matters of faith and practice, morals and behavior? It places us in a very, very similar situation to the first believers. The ones we've been rehearsing with as they came to faith could not be shut up and began to preach the gospel to a wider and wider audience that has brought the gospel around the world to Western civilization with the truths of that gospel becoming the foundation of Western civilization and Western jurisprudence. It leaves us in the same place concerning our commitment to Christ as our first Lord and Savior and lover of our souls. And while I am thrilled to be an American and have been so proud to become an American, having been born and raised in England, today my heart is heavy because of this decision. I am ashamed of this decision. But the hope of the nation is not in rectifying this decision any more than changing the abortion laws. The hope of the nation, as we have just sung, Jesus, hope of the nation, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wherever wherever we find ourselves, we want to be the contemporary church in action, alive to Jesus Christ, alive to the gospel, speaking out and sharing the good news that he changes hearts. At my home group, recently, two conversations were had. This was just this week, week past. Small group that I'm a part of, two things were said. One, by one of the people there, that she had read her way through the Acts of the Apostles as I had just encouraged them, and them being you all as well, and said, you need to speak to everybody and get them to read their way through it in one sitting, as you encouraged me. It was exhilarating. That was one conversation. The other conversation was this, that in the light of this decision, 
we begin to find out who are the real followers of Jesus. Who will really pay the price of standing tall for Christ? And what they mentioned was this. This is extraordinary. One of them mentioned where there had been a marriage of two females with an adopted child in the family. One of the females came to know Jesus Christ, ended that relationship, stepped out of that relationship, and though it was against what she perceived her natural instincts, wanted to follow Jesus Christ, and by the power of God's grace was doing so. The hope and future of our nation is not in the Supreme Court, as disgusted and sick as I am at that decision. It's right here. It's with us, lovers of Jesus. You love Jesus, you stand tall for him. Follow him. It doesn't mean being hateful and belligerent. It means reaching out with the good news and grace of a God who loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us. That's what we celebrate in this Holy Communion service. You come and give your lives back to Christ as you come forward and receive the bread and the wine. Bow your heads and pray with me, will you please? O Lord Jesus Christ, our nation, a great nation, has done so much good around the world. Over the just few centuries it has existed. Thank you for the way the good news of the gospel and the wealth and leadership of this nation has been invested in sharing that gospel and the fruit of that gospel in other nations around the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Do we pray for ourselves as we gather around your holy table that we would turn our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus, and look full in your wonderful face that the things of earth might grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Keep us true to you and your word, Lord Jesus. May the power of your spirit baptize us with a fresh burst of energy and passion and love for the truth and love for our neighbors. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus.